Hear then God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. Thus far in God's word, inerrant and sure, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand quiet before you in this hour. We know that you are present with us. You always are, but especially so when your people gather to praise your name and to hear your word, to encourage one another. So we assemble, O God, and seek that you would, by your spirit, through your word, encourage and strengthen our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know that I am no musician or singer. (laughs) 
That's why I have them turn off this mic when I'm wearing it during the singing. Uh, but but that's, be that as it may, I love to listen to music. I really do. And I love the, I got to listen to part of the uh, um, Messiah last Sunday evening. It was beautiful. Um, great work done, of course, by uh, Handel. And uh, Handel wrote the Messiah, but there's an oratorio that I like even better. It's the Elijah written by Mendelssohn. I had a little help by uh, from uh, Dana in identifying the, the uh, composer. I remembered it long ago and forgotten it. Now that happens, it seems, uh, with my advancing years. But, but I, I love that piece of work, too, because like others that you may think of, it has different parts that are woven together, and at first they seem dissonant. Kind of like some of the sagas, the great epic novels by James Missioner, where you have different layers and, and uh, storylines through several generations that suddenly then all converge and make sense. It's masterful. And with the composition, so it is, they come to a final resolution, and it's beautiful. Thing of beauty. But you know, history's like that. Our lives are like that. What God's hand in the world is doing from creation and the fall to redemption's final call is like that. The great story, the epic narrative of the Bible is that of redemptive history of God redeeming a people for himself, revealing it at first right there to us in the Garden of Eden immediately after sin had entered the world, but planned by God. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the earth itself, God's plans stood firm. He was unfolding it. The devil had not, Satan, the great usurper, had not overthrown the creative purpose of God at all. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to wipe this one out. You won that one. Best two out of three, Satan. It didn't play that way. It's no game for him. He wins every time. What he purposed in his creation, he will fulfill and complete in his creation. And that includes every player within it. And that includes you and me. In the text before us, we're taught that God orchestrates all things to fulfill his redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. It's the sermon. If you, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. God orchestrates all things to fulfill his redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. And that gives us Hope too. Because if God so orchestrates the birth of his son, and he does, as we shall see, so he also orchestrates every event in our lives, even the painful ones, as Rebecca has shared in her testimony a bit earlier. Paul, through um, the Holy Spirit, writes in Romans 8, 28, that God is working everything together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, my friend, that means you and it means me. Confidence that gives us in difficult times. First of all, I want us to know 
to note that God works through circumstances and people to bring about his plan. Verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Verse 2, this is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Now, here's Mary. Here's Joseph minding their own business, setting up a carpentry shop, presumably. And, and uh, they know nothing of what's going on in imperial Rome and the palace of Caesar Augustus. But Caesar Augustus has already, years before that, determined that he wants to have an accurate registration of where everyone lives, where they're from, what nationality they are, and the purpose to be able to levy uh, requirements of those governors or kings who are submissive to him, vassals to him, for troops or for taxes or other tribute. He's not the first emperor or king to have done so. But as he did so, it was the whole Roman world. That was the entire Mediterranean basin. All the nations that bordered the Mediterranean, held together by the Roman ships, the navy that patrolled and had swept the pirates from the seas about that time. Also by the network of Roman roads that had been engineered and placed down there. Everything was in place. He could do that. And he gave a decree. But this decree was not fulfilled instantly by everyone everywhere. I want you to understand that. It was kind of a, a, a wave action, a rolling accomplishment. One governorship after another. One section after another. And the section that included Galilee occurred approximately 4 B.C. Say four years before Christ. How could Christ be before, born before Christ? Well, that's our calendar issue that uh, is resolved if you look back into how we got our modern calendar and the errors that were made during the medieval system. But if we did it back, we would find the historicity before B.C. problem. Quirinius is only recorded as being governor. He's a former uh, consul of Rome. And now was a proconsul or governor, that was typical in those days, uh, of the Syria, area of Syria, which th at that point annexed the region of Galilee, including Nazareth, into the prefecture, if you will, of Syria. But that would have been, oh, around 6 to 7 AD, 10 years later. Uh, errors in the Bible, error in the Bible. Oh, well, we don't need to worry about historicity. It's just a matter of the heart. I don't buy the, either of those things. We're the foreigners to the Bible. We need to study it first. Don't assume it's wrong and we're right. Know it all. Number two, it does matter whether it's history or not. That's why Luke wrote his gospel. But the word protos here in this verse doesn't just mean first done. This is the first one done under Quirinius. It is translated in other places in the New Testament as the first time, formerly, previously. And this is the 
uh, first time that it was done. It is translated also before in the New Testament. Before, and that's the way I think it is here. In other words, this is the census that was done before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that presents really no problem for us. But it did mean that Galilee is still part of Palestine with Judea. And so it would make sense for him to go not to a different prefecture, but within his own. And so Joseph and Mary wander down, actually up. They're going north to south, but that's up, you know, in terms of elevation. Up to the region of Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. And just about five miles, six miles outside of that city, the, the capital of King David, Jerusalem, is his birth town, a little modest town called Bethlehem. A lot of history about Bethlehem we don't have time to go into today, but that's the, uh, the family line comes down for Joseph from there. So he goes there. And uh, the time is just right. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that was read last week for us by one of our elders, is so true. Uh, where uh, the Apostle Paul says, At just the right time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might uh, redeem those under the law and make us his sons. Just the right time. You see, Jesus' birth reconciled an apparent prophetic paradox where it seemed like God was saying two different things. He can't talk out of both sides of his mouth. He's God, and what he says is always true. And yet it seemed that way. In Isaiah 9, verse 1, read for uh, us, we, we uh, meditated upon it last Lord's Day. We read... Um, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee by the gent of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And in chapter 11 of Isaiah's prophecy, we read verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And that's the verse that was read by Jonathan a little bit ago. Now, Abraham, uh, Isaiah uses a word for shoot or sprout that's called Nazar. Now, it's a different word from Nazar, I mean, you wouldn't confuse it if you were Hebrew. It sounds alike to our ears. But Jesus is not a Nazarite. That's one who does a certain vow. But Jesus is a Nazarite. That is one from the area. It's a different consonant. You may not hear it, but they do. Different spelling in Hebrew. Second consonant is very different. And it means a sprout, a shoot. And Nazareth is a sprout town in Galilee, a fulfillment of God's prophecy that he would restore his people after the exile in Babylon to their own land, and they would spring up again. And in 
Isaiah 11, verse 1, there will be a shoot from David's stump, a sprout from a branch that will grow up uh, from that line. And so we look for God to provide someone who will be present in Nazareth, in Galilee. And yet, and yet, while Matthew 2.23 tells us he shall be called a Nazarene, not Nazarite, not one who takes the Old Testament, vow to grow his hair long and touch no wine or grape or anything, raisins, nothing like that, stay away from funerals, you know, you had to do all these things. If you were a Nazarite, for the period of your vow, it was generally temporary. Only one person was supposed to be lifelong, and that was Samson, another story. But here we, and it wasn't a very good one, but here we are uh, with Jesus, who will be called not a Nazarite, but a Nazarene. Now, we don't find when, when Matthew quotes that, he says, as it was said in the prophets, prophesied. Then he says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Those words, he shall be called a Nazarene, in English, six words, are not found in the Old Testament. Oh, error in the Bible. Here we go again. No, 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 no. He's just saying this is the teaching, the summary of what the prophet said. He'll be called a Nazarene. Not that these very words are there, but, but this is the teaching of Scripture. He'll be called a Nazarene. Ah, but, 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 what about Micah 5, verse 2? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So he has to be born in Bethlehem, which was David's place of birth. How would God do that? Well, we see he put it in the mind of Emperor Caesar Augustus far, far away in the palace in Rome to issue a decree that would require Joseph and Mary just at the time that Mary's due to make that difficult journey southward and upward from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I'm not a big jigsaw puzzle person, but I have relatives, a lot of them, who love to do it, and they're good at it. But one of the things I notice, at least to me, is that jigsaw puzzles often seem very confusing and without solution until some key piece or another is identified and put into place, and then all the others begin to come together. And so it's that way often when we come to the Bible. We don't see the big picture without Christ and the revelation of his spirit. We must not come demanding that he prove himself, but rather with humility, reverence, and readiness for God's spirit to illumine our understanding in his time. In short, teachability. We're the foreigner to the culture and language of the Bible. Lord, we should say, show me from your word. Notice here that Jesus' cradle enabled the shepherds to recognize him. In our text, verse 16, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Uh, You recall recall in verse 12, they had said, this will be a sign, Simeon, to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, 
Find a baby. There are lots of babies. A newborn. Well, in a city, a small town like that, there may be more than one child born. How are they going to knock at doors? Knock, knock, knock. You have a baby born tonight? Not easy for uninvited shepherd guests. Shepherds were not regarded highly in that society. They were generally uneducated people. They were kind of rough and unkempt. They didn't get a bath every day. They stayed out under all weather conditions. You don't want them in your living room. I mean, that's kind of the way it was probably looked at. Now, we've got to watch the silverware. Shepherds are here, you know. I mean, we idealize it, but it wasn't that way. And so here come the shepherds. How are they going to find them? Well, the child will be, the baby will be wrapped in cloths. Now, that usually immobilizes the child so it can't hurt itself, but it also keeps it warm. And, but that's not the clothing that a prince would be girded in, clad in. It tells you immediately that this is one of the people, one of the common people born in the city of David, but among poor parents. Born into poverty. Further, they will find him in a feeding trough, animal feeding trough, a manger. Those are not kept next to your china in the living room. It's kept outside in the stall where you keep your animals. So it will be outside where could be seen by shepherds coming in from the fields and looking around. Where's, I see a stall over here and it doesn't look like any human beings. Or not. I see one over there. Well, they found one. Not that big a town. They found one where there were two people and a little baby wrapped in cloths lying in the straw of a manger, a feeding trough, just as the angel had said. Now, what was miraculous about that? Nothing, but there was something very, very distinctive. You see, the angel had said, this will be, this will be a sign to you. He said the word semeon. That's normally a powerful sign from God alone that only God could do. And then what do we see? A newborn baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Ordinary things, except that it's unusual for a newborn be cast out into the cold. It was that night, the night of his birth. It's a night, the very night, that God would send shepherds, the least of the least, into the town to look for and find his son. There's another sign of which Jesus spoke. In chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, Again in chapter uh, 16, but we'll look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus during his public ministry after he'd grown up, they said, teacher, we want to see a semion, a miraculous sign from you. Now remember, he'd done a lot of them. He had already healed the sick raised the dead, cast out demons, fed the multitudes, and they say, prove it. I mean, that's what they're saying. Those aren't good enough. Anybody could do that. What? We want something else. 
So he says, all right, for you, he says. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. It would be a sign not that they would judge, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, fulfillment of the prophet's words, would be a sign that would judge them. And so it is with God's word. We must take heed how we hearken unto the word of God. God is working through circumstances and through people to bring about his plan, and he did so especially regarding the birth of his son. And he uses both circumstances and special revelation. God's speaking to us through the prophets or, or uh, through the angels to point us to Christ. In our text, verses 11 and 12, we read, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, those two verses don't seem to be compatible very easily, juxtaposed the way they are. A Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord Himself, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a feeding trough outside, even an inn. How can it be? We see the shepherds were told who he was. They couldn't have figured that out. But they were also told what to look for, what they could see. That would then be the sign, because they were told ahead of time. Only special revelation can tell us that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord. In verse 11, the word Savior is used a lot, that same word, in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew translated into the Greek Old Testament, Septuagint. It's used again and again uh, for the judges that God raised up to save his people from oppression by foreign domination when God allowed that, uh, that to happen um, in order to chasten his people as they wandered away from God. And he allowed other people to come in, other nations, to suppress them and, uh, and to subject them to all kinds of, of, of problems and difficulties. And then he would raise up a judge, a savior, Soteros, who would come and then free them from that. But Jesus is more than just one of the judges. He's not that kind of a savior. He's a savior, yes, but he is the Messiah, Hamashiach in Hebrew. Christos in the Greek, Christ, the anointed one, the one who is the prophet who is to come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. Jesus is Savior, 
but more than just a judge. He is also Messiah, the anointed, but here we're told he is also Koryos, ho Koryos, the Lord. And the term Lord is used in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, for the tetragrammaton, for God himself. Jehovah, it's transliterated, but Yahweh in the Hebrew. The great I am, the self-existent one, the one who delivers and redeems his people, the one who saves us and watches over us as a shepherd to his people. He is Savior, Christ, Lord. How will we find this great person? He'd be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in an animal trough. And God brings about surprises with wonderful things, great tidings, glad tidings of great joy for all the people, the angel said. World religions all strive to discover or to construct a worldview that provides meaning in life and also offers some sense of how human beings may find release from trouble and maybe even hope in this life and even in the hereafter. But it's only the Bible that tells us the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ alone for this baby in the manger was the one foretold in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent at great pain to himself. This is the one through whom the promise would come as God said to Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is this one that is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that out of his issue would come the ultimate king whose kingdom would never end. It was this one, this great savior who would come, grow up, and at the age of about 30, that would be Hebrew 30 is about 29 for us, as it is in, in the Arab world and, the, uh, and in the Korean and other Asian communities. They don't have a zero year, so you don't have a six-month-old child. He's a year old when he's born. So maybe around age 29 for us, and this one would be in public ministry, revealed by John the Baptist's ministry, as foretold by the prophets. And he would minister publicly among the people for three and probably a half more years, three and a half years, beginning and ending approximately with, uh, with Passover meals. And he would give his life intentionally as an innocent substitute for the people of God. People of God were forbidden to offer their children as a sacrifice to God or any of the gods like Moloch and Chemosh, the detestable um, gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the nations round about them who burned their infants alive in the fire as propitiation they hoped for their sin. Psalmist said, what shall I give for my sin? Shall I give... 
the fruit of my body, my firstborn. No, the, he says the, uh, the ransom for a soul is too great. He's right. Isaac wasn't given a substitute, the ram on Mount Moriah, when Abraham was called on to offer him. He wasn't provided for there because he was too precious. It's because Isaac wasn't good enough. He had sin. We have sin. None of us are acceptable sacrifices. Animals have no sin. The problem is they have no righteousness. Jesus came. You wonder how God would live if he had to be born into and grow up amidst the oppressed underclass of this world. Well, he did. Look at Jesus. That's what he would be like. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he gave that innocent life on the cross, the hands of wicked men. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up. And so he did rise from the dead. But when he died, crucifixion was intended to last days as a public example. Jesus hung on the cross just six hours. The latter three were stark dark from noon to three in the afternoon. And there wasn't a word from the cross from Jesus' lips or from heaven. Three hours, the last half of his time on the cross of utter and abject silence as Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world, of all those whom he came to save, who had come to trust in him. And having done so, he lay in the grave until God raised him up. And on Easter, first Easter, the door was opened, the stone rolled back, great stone, heavy stone, from the tomb door, not to let Jesus out, but to let his disciples in. The first ones were the women who administered to him. They seemed to be braver than men at that time. And they came in and were able to see that he is risen. And Mary Magdalene was, met the risen Christ. And Peter and John came and saw the empty tomb. And then the risen Christ appeared that day in the upper room to 10 of his surviving 11 disciples and the following week to all 11 of them. And then again and again to different ones, to his brothers, including at least James. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Probably Jude as well because you find his brothers in the upper room just a few days, a few weeks later in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And they had opposed his ministry in life and liked having have a big brother. Mary, can you imagine Mary saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> None of us can, you know. Jesus appeared to them in Galilee to over 500 at once. All of that orchestrated by God so that those who look on him may live. It means look on him with faith. It means apprehend who he is. This is not just some tragedy, a travesty of justice. It's so sad, too bad. Those things happen in a in a 
difficult and uneven world. No, 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 no. This was in Acts chapter 2. Peter, the apostle, says, by God's predetermined plan, he was turned over and you with wicked hands have taken and slain. We have responsibility? Yes. We have choices? Yes. They have consequences? Yes. But yet God somehow orchestrates and overrules them all? Yes. For the good of his own. How? Well, I'm not God. I really don't know how he does all that. I have no doubt that he knows well and can take care of you and take care of me. See, God's special providence may serve as his unmistakable signal flag that he's at work in a special way, just as it was with Jesus being laid there in a manger for uninvited shepherds to locate. But finally, God's good news moves us to respond by coming to Jesus Christ. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has told us about. Why would they do that? Well, the angel had just said, peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Who are those who are the wise men who still seek him? Well, they are those whom Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, no one can come to me unless my Father draws them. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And you'll notice, too, that encountering Christ leads us to worship and praise. In verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. In verses 17 and 18, um, we're to, we're, uh, we read these verses. <clears throat> when they had seen him, the baby, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. You see, encountering Christ leads us to share the good news with others. <clears throat> I lived for a while in, uh, in Australia and got to meet a number of aboriginals and some of them in the outback and later did some PhD research about, um, uh, don't smile, about uh, uh, nomadic aboriginal tribal uh, burial rituals and how they varied and showed something about aboriginal notions of the afterlife and, and so on. Burial rites do show a lot about what a civilization thinks. You know, funerals will tell us that. But one of the things that I noticed or uh, learned about that is capital punishment is rarely given for a lot of things we might. But they have a rule that if you withhold food and hide it, that's a capital offense. Capital offense for hiding food. Boggles our mind. Well, it wouldn't if you lived in the outback of Australia as a nomad, little family groups. Survival is a group thing. You know, hide something that can provide survival for y'all. Can you imagine, though, if it were a, a resource that were unlimited and absolutely necessary for life? Let's say fresh water. If there's a, a lake in the outback with fresh water, and you're parched, and, and your people are dying of thirst, you know where there is, because you stumbled on it. 
you hide that? Of course not. I hope not. We have the one who said he is the water of life. He gives it. We have the one who gives life everlasting. Life abundantly. How missional are we at Christ Community? In our eagerness to share the gospel in North Cobb County. Oh, I know some who really are. I'm grateful for that. May God stir all our hearts to reflect our Lord's heart for our neighbors and for our world. And remember this. That if God so orchestrated the events of his son's birth. He orchestrates no less the experiences and circumstances of every one of his children. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Take heart, believer. The Lord is with you. Let's pray.